0: What is wrong with this world? What is this world's biggest problem? In a divided age like ours, one of the few things that we can seem to agree on is that this world is broken. There are troubles and pains and sorrows that no one can deny. From violence to corruption to injustice, from discord and strife, our bodies decay, relationships strain, our world groans. And while the symptoms of the disease are all too evident, the reality is that we, we can't seem to agree as to its cause. Look, so Marxists said that the problem lay with capitalism and the bourgeoisie exploitation of the workers. Some Eastern spiritualities locate the chief problem in desire, the aspirations that we all have. Some would locate the problem in low self-esteem or low serotonin levels. Freud posited that a frustrated sexual instinct lay at the root of all our problems. Others blame big business or big government, one's upbringing or society in general. These are all various sources the flaws and sorrows that this world knows. What does the Bible say? What does Jesus say that our biggest problem is? To help us answer this question, this morning we'll be in Mark chapter 7. So let me encourage you to turn there if you're not there already. Mark 7 we will be in verses 1 to 23. We're in our 12th week in the gospel of Mark, just kind of walking through it. And so far in Mark's gospel, we've seen Jesus of Nazareth be baptized at the Jordan River where God the Father anointed God the Son with God the Holy Spirit, and Jesus was declared to be the Christ, the King of Israel. And then since then, Jesus has been authoritatively going around teaching and healing and casting out demons and subduing storms and showing mercy to the hurting. He's endured the opposition of the Pharisees and the other Jewish religious leaders of his day, even as he's called people to follow him. The crowds have come to Jesus seemingly as a a healer on demand, doctor on demand, and yet he has continued Jesus to proclaim the kingdom of God and summon people to follow him. Just last week, we saw Jesus assert his divine identity as he assumed the role of shepherd of Israel. And provider in the wilderness. He even tread upon the waters of the sea, passed his glory by the disciples, and claimed to be I am, the very name of God. And thus we arrive at Mark 7, verses 1 to 23 this morning. We'll have three sections, and the main idea of our passage is simply this Jesus exposes our hypocrisy and sin's defilement. Of our hearts, Jesus exposes our hypocrisy and sin's defilement of our hearts. So read along with me Mark chapter 7. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Amen. Well, our first point is found in verses one to five entitled setting the scene. And that's really what we get here. Mark is setting up the confrontation to come You notice how verse 1 says the Pharisees and some scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Uh, This is significant because it shows that this wasn't a chance encounter in the Galilean countryside. No, they had traveled some 75 miles to see Jesus. Likely for coming for the same reason they had come earlier in the Capernaum synagogue in chapter 3. They came to Jesus because they wanted to watch him. They wanted to watch him because they wanted to trap him. They wanted to trap him so they could accuse him. That is, these religious leaders weren't genuinely curious about Jesus and his message. No, they were looking for a fight. And so in verse 2, it says, they saw some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. Now, pause. This is not a statement about hygiene. This is not a statement about the lack of purel available at the time. When it says they have defiled hands, unwashed hands, it's talking about ceremonial, ritual washings. And then Mark inserts this editorial comment. You see that in verses three and four. Perhaps your Bible translation has a parenthesis regarding the, the general practices of these Pharisees. Namely, the Pharisees were extremely scrupulous about ceremonial purity. However, in this instance, and in many others, They were insisting upon a point that God's law had never actually touched upon. God's word said nothing about daily washings that needed to happen ceremonially before every meal. So then why do the Pharisees and scribes, why do they do this? Well, you notice in verses 3 and 4, it's that they hold to the tradition of the elders. And there are many other traditions that they observe. The Pharisees were religiously insistent upon this point that you must wash properly for every meal. And yet the, the basis for this and many other beliefs was not the word of God, but human tradition, human opinion. And so this opening setting of the scene comes to a head in verse five. And the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands. This is the nub of the problem, isn't it? Nub of the matter, rather. The the problem is that they don't wash their hands. The reason is they don't walk according to the tradition of the elders, and the result is that they were defiled. You see how this is a not-so-subtle accusation against Jesus and his followers. And it's really interesting. Though Jesus has been on the receiving end of abuse and hostility from so, for some time now from the Pharisees and the religious leaders, he has not ever responded until now. Notice Jesus' response in verse six. This is still our first point, still in verse six. And he said to them, "'Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites.'" as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men. And what we're going to find is that Jesus basically did, Jesus does, what I'm trying to do right now. Jesus is going to unpack that Isaiah quote. At first, he's going to unpack that second part, where you teach as doctrines of God, the commandments of men. That's the second half of Isaiah. And then he's going to go back to that first part, where these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. All right, so that's what we're going to find in our our next two sections. Let's turn to our second section, in verses 7 to 13, entitled, Man-Made Religion. So again, this is building off of verse 7. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Friends, I wonder if this strikes you for how big a problem as it truly is. This is the epitome of a massive problem that we all share. And it is to publicly misrepresent God. It is to state something about God and about his world that is not true, something that is not based on God and his word, but on human opinion, on human tradition. When a preacher or a teacher stands up and says, thus says the Lord, and then proceeds to share his or her own views, a terrible blasphemy has been committed right? Because it's to put ourselves in the place of God. It's to put our opinions where only God's word deserves to be. It exalts man as if our own ideas should be as binding as divine commands. And thus, you know, we all of us begin to assume the role that only God and his word deserve to have. Friends, it is so easy to replace God's word with our own words. You see that is exactly what Jesus rebukes in verse eight, right? You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Right, so this isn't a problem confined only to Jesus' day. This happens all the time. You're sharing the gospel with someone, talking about God, about Jesus, about the Bible. And then, somebody responds to you with something like, well, I like to think about God as blank. They say, I know what God's word says, but I don't really care about that. My tradition, my opinion, my preference is to think of God this other way. But of course, it's not limited to non-Christians who do this. Even as believers, we are prone in our thoughts and in our hearts to, to begin to, to slip in our thinking, uh, to begin to conform God to our image, he likes what we like, rather than to conform our own traditions and our own opinions and our own preferences to God and to his word. You know, this temptation that our opinions and desires would, would get to shape God's revelation, well, it's so strong that this is actually one of the reasons why we preach through books of the Bible here at Trinity. Why do we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through books of the Bible? Well, it's because we don't trust ourselves. That'd be the basic answer. We know our own hearts that we like to create gods in our own image, a God who follows our traditions, a morality that appeals to our sensibilities. And so we need to hear, not from Scott, but from God. We want his word to be the the driver and the engine of everything we do here. We know how easy it is to leave the commandment of God, how easy it is to insist upon merely human doctrines, right? I mean, would I naturally choose to preach a message about sin? That's kind of what this whole service is about. I wonder if you noticed that. The scripture readings, the catechism, it's all things about sin. I probably wouldn't have chosen that naturally, but it's in God's word. We need to hear it. We need to be shaped not by Scott's opinions, not by our opinions, but by God's authoritative word, his commands. Because I wonder if you noticed how God's word and human traditions are actually mutually exclusive. Do you see that in verse nine? He says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God, in order to establish your tradition. And the ESV translates it perfectly there. That's exactly right. You cannot have both. You can either establish your own opinions or you can submit to God's word. And this, you know, this puzzled me. I was sitting at Starbucks this week thinking about why is this the case? I think the reason is that you can't have multiple ultimate authorities in your life. Right? I mean, by definition, you can only have one highest authority. For these religious leaders, they had abandoned God's word to make way for their word. And so Jesus gives just one example of this problem in his day. You see that in verse 10, he notes how, although the law of Moses commanded children to honor their parents, the Pharisees had devised a way to get out from under that particular obedience. As verse 11 shows, if an adult child declared their money Corbin, which means that the adult person would intended to give their money to God upon their death, Well, now that adult child would not have to care for his or her parents. In doing so, verse 13 concludes, Jesus says that you thus make void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. Friends, this is why God's word has to be the highest authority in our churches. Okay, so there are some church traditions that would elevate, human reason, or church tradition, or emotion, or any number of things, as, well, they maybe wouldn't say above the Bible, but they'd say equal with God's word. We can have dual highest authorities. I don't think that's true. I think you either submit to God's word, or you don't. How how should this apply to us today? These Pharisees, how they had devised this way to get out from under obedience, Well, I think simply put, we must beware of attempts to avoid the necessity of obedience. Beware attempts to avoid the necessity of obedience. Today, there are preachers who insist that you can follow Christ and be his disciple. And you can live in unrepentant sin, especially unrepentant sexual sin. Just like the Pharisees they have created, conjured up, convoluted explanations as to why God's word doesn't mean what it so clearly seems to mean. Just like the Pharisees, these preachers today elevate their own moral and religious reasonings to the status of doctrines, all the while making void the word of God. Because I wonder if you noticed how Jesus doesn't attempt to make any distinction or difference between Moses's word and God's word. Do you see that? Verse nine, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God. Okay, so it's God's word, God's commandment, in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, and then in verse 13, thus making void the word of Moses. No, the word of God. Brothers and sisters, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. When Moses speaks, God speaks. When Paul speaks, God speaks. When Peter's word is inscripturated in the book of Acts, it's God's word. When the apostle John writes his epistles and his revelation, it is God's command. To disobey God's written word is to disobey God himself. There are people who say they can disobey the Bible, but love God. Jesus, however, knows no such category. The Bible and the commandments therein is God's word. And the result of this is, again, it's actually found at the beginning of verse 7. In the Isaiah quote, it says, In vain do they worship me by teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. It's all vain empty, meaningless. Friends, did you know that it's possible to go to all the right church services, use all the religious lingo, read all the Bible passages, give lots of money, and that your supposed worship be worthless? You can even be a religious teacher. But if you are not building your life upon the word of God, if your worship is not built on the commands of God, it will all be false and God is not pleased with it because God's interest is not the mere forms or appearance of religion. No, he's after our very hearts, our very affections. That's what we see in our third and final point in verses 14 to 23 entitled Hearts Exposed. But, you know, really this 14 to 23, it's a meditation on that first verse six, part of the Isaiah quote. So verse six reads, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Jesus has just unpacked the second half of the Isaiah quotation. Now he returns to the first And going back, do you notice how Jesus calls these people hypocrites? That is, the external behavior that they were doing did not match the internal heart posture that they had. They were pretenders. The word hypocrite literally refers to the the masks that Greek actors would put on when they were putting on a Greek tragedy or comedy. These Pharisees were mask wearers they would put on the mask of religion. They'd put on the show of righteousness. But underneath, they were spiritually dead. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Oh, friends, it's, it's good to honor God with our lips, right? I trust you were just doing that with us a few seconds ago as we sang. What a joy it is to worship God with our lips. And yet for these Pharisees, for those in Isaiah's day, And the temptation for us is that it's all in vain. Because although externally they seem to love and exalt and glorify God, yet their lips did not match their inward hearts. What does it say? It says that their hearts were far from God. Their hearts were far from God. They only pretended to know him and thus they missed the most important part. Because God, again, he wasn't after mere external show, as if he needed bulls and goats and pigeons. God didn't ultimately care about their synagogue attendance or frequent tithing. He didn't ultimately desire their begrudging obedience. All along, he was after their heart. Now, now when I say heart, I think we just need to pause and say the, the way the Bible defines the heart is very different than 21st century modern America Disney heart. So in the Bible, to talk about the heart is to talk about kind of the, the command center of the human person. It's the control room. It's the throne of who we are. The heart is the center of our being. You know, in America today, we talk about our feelings as our heart, our emotions, and that's fine. But for Jesus, for God, for the Bible... To speak of the heart is to speak of the inner person. What, what drives you and me? And that's what made this false, vain religion of the Pharisees so lamentable. Right, they were giving themselves to honoring God with their lips. They were keeping up all the religious trappings. And yet all the time they missed the most important thing. It would be like a child who dutifully obeys her parents. She cleans her room and does the dishes. She doesn't stay out late. She says, yes please and no thank you. But inwardly she couldn't care less about her parents. She doesn't want to spend time with them. She doesn't want to know them. She doesn't want to be near them. Indeed, her external moral conformity is actually her attempt to keep them away. Well, friends, if you're the parent, are you pleased with that? Do you think that's what the parents really sought after? When parents dream of having a child, is that that what they think? I really want a daughter who just, you know, on the command, does everything I say. I don't care if I get to know her, love her, enjoy her, as long as she does the checklist. Well, no, right? No, they want her. They want her heart. They want to know her, be near to her, not cold or distant. Beloved, this is how God feels towards us. He desires us to be near him, to have our hearts love him, not mere external conformity. Because the Garden of Eden wasn't ultimately about obedience, though it obviously certainly included that. It was about being near to God. That was the sunum bonum. That was the highest good. The new heavens and the new earth. It won't ultimately be about obedience, though of course it will involve that. But to use Jonathan Edwards' phrase, heaven is a world of love. That's what God wanted. Yes, lips that honored him, but ultimately lips that honored him from a heart overflowing with praise and thanksgiving and adoration and humility. And these religious leaders have done the opposite of that. Friends, let me encourage you to pray for me, pray for Dave, uh, pray for all of those who, who stand up front in helping lead the public worship of God. Pray that we would not Honor God with our lips, with our hearts being far from him. Pray that this wouldn't be a mere religious show. This is such a big deal that Jesus turns and addresses uh, the crowd. He's versing the Pharisees in verse 6, but then he turns to the entire crowd in verse 14. And that reason he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. In verse 17, the disciples show themselves to once again be spiritually dull, and I've said it before, and I'm probably gonna keep saying it for the next couple weeks. The fact that the disciples look like such fools throughout the Gospel of Mark is just really good evidence that the Gospel of Mark is not religious propaganda. Right, so people believe probably Mark was Peter's assistant And that, uh, so Mark got his information about the gospel from Peter. Do you notice how Peter just looks like an idiot a lot of the time? That's because Mark is more concerned about telling the truth about who Jesus is and what really happened than, you know, inflating Peter's ego or anything like that. The disciples look like fools because they are acting like fools. And then Jesus responds in verse 18, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not into his heart but his stomach and is expelled? And then Mark adds, Thus he declared all foods clean. All right, so let's just pause. Jesus is here clearing up some confusion by directly refuting the Pharisees' error. Jesus is saying that defilement is not a matter of not touching certain things or not consuming the wrong things. Food doesn't defile because it merely goes into one's stomach. And then Mark inserts this editorial comment, right, at the end of verse 19. Thus he declared all foods clean. What in the world is going on with this? Because if you look back at the Old Testament, at the, the very laws of Moses... That Jesus was just commending. Right? He was saying, stop leaving the laws of Moses. And then Jesus says, Yeah, all foods are clean. What is going on? You'll find lots of laws about food. About how you can eat certain foods, certain fish. You can't go to legals and get fried clams, though. So what's going on here? Well, first, who is this Jesus who has authority to declare the proper interpretation of the Old Testament? to fulfill its laws, to even make or declare foods, all foods clean when so much of the Jewish religion was built around these eating habits. It was such a central tenet of the Jewish religion. Who is this Jesus? And second, why does he do it? I mean, if God has instituted the food laws, Jesus is God. Jesus is God's messenger. Is this God just... Changing his mind? What's going on here? Well, well here, this is really important. Here we see that the Old Testament often used symbols and signs to teach theological truths. Okay, it used physical reality to teach spiritual truths. So that throughout the Old Testament, God will say, certain things defile you. Contact with a human corpse or a discharge from your body, coming into contact with someone with leprosy and really a host of other activities could all leave you defiled and unclean. And yet Jesus is getting at the fact that these external physical realities were never the point. When God forbid certain foods or clothing with ceremonial and ritual laws, it was not because that that food or that clothing was the really significant thing. No, it's that those food and clothing laws were meant to teach a spiritual truth. Truths like the fact that God is holy. He's other. He's not like us. We can't just glibly approach him. That access that Adam and Eve had, walking in the garden, being near to God. Well, now because of sin, we're far from God. Sin defiles. He is pure, but we are not. Sin, sin is the problem, not the shellfish. This is what the Old Testament has always been about. And so Jesus is correcting this misinterpretation of the Pharisees. And you see that in verse 20. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Now, if you just had verse 20, what comes out of a person is what defiles him, you might think Jesus was referring to sewage, that the latrine is what defiles us. But friends, that's not where the problem lies. That's not where defilement comes from. He's already hinted at it in verse 19, but Jesus states it explicitly there in verse 21. From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. Friends, here we come face to face with the most sobering and damning of truths. We are our biggest problem. It is our problem. Hearts that defile us. It is not that which is outside of us that we should most be concerned about. It is what is inside of us. Friends, we must realize that sin is dirtier than sewage. Sin defiles more deeply and more permanently. Sin makes us impure and unclean. Sin is the dirtiest thing in this world. You know, and it's this reality that that sin defiles more than the outside world that the Lord had actually been teaching for a long time. You remember when King David was transporting the Ark of the Covenant in 2 Samuel 6? God had said, No one can touch the ark and live, you should carry it on these poles. But instead of putting it on the poles, David and his comrades, they put it on a cart. The ox is pulling the cart. Ox is pulling the cart, and the ox stumbles. And so the cart lurches, and so the ark teeters. And do you remember what Uzzah, the priest, sought to do? He reached out his hand so that the ark would not fall in the dirt. He reached out his hand, and he touched that which no human being could touch. And God struck him dead. Dead. Why? What what was God doing? I mean, surely Uzzah's motives were pure. I mean, he was just trying to steady the ark. And yet, to quote the late R.C. Sproul, the presumptuous sin of Uzzah was this he assumed that his hands were less polluted than the dirt. Yet, friends, it is not dirt or anything external to us that we must be ultimately concerned about. It is the defilement in our own hearts. It is man. We are defiled. We are polluted because it is from our hearts that sin flows. You see that in the actions and and all that Jesus lists in verses 21 and 22. The first six sins that Jesus mentions refer to actions. The second six Six, refer to attitudes. And we all get nailed by this, don't we? There's no one who can raise their hands and say, I'm exempt from this list. And it doesn't apply to me. Because it applies to young and old, East and West, rich and poor, black and white, Asian and Hispanic, educated and uneducated. Every single one of us is guilty before the Lord. Every single one of us in our sin has produced these evil deeds. And so the result Jesus concludes in verse 23 is that all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. We are defiled and unclean because of our sinful actions. And so how should we respond? How should you respond Let me suggest seven ways as we conclude. Seven ways. First, recognize that you are your biggest problem. We all have the tendency, don't we, of blaming our problems on other people, of being most concerned about the things outside of us. And when we sin, We blame our external circumstances, like Adam and Eve. You remember that? God comes to Adam. Adam, what have you done? Well, the woman you gave me, it's her fault and it's your fault. Eve, what have you done? The serpent, we were angry and irritable because of the traffic. Uh, We're we're ungrateful and unkind because of just the, the bad week we've been having. We gave in to lust because we're just so exhausted from serving others. And yet, friends, this is to locate when we do this, the problem outside of us, when Jesus says the problem is inside of us. You know, of course, outside circumstances do play a role in our behavior. Uh, Family upbringing and cultural experience and genetics and how much sleep you've been getting, all of that influences our behavior, no doubt. But Jesus is saying that the heart of the matter is the matter of our hearts. That's where the final responsibility lies. The traitor is within the camp, and thus any attempt to solve the problems in our life have to first and foremost look within. This means that if the problem was outside of us, right? If that was the fundamental problem, what we just need to do, we would just need to excuse ourselves from that problem situation, right? We just got to get out of that bad marriage. We just got to change difficult jobs. We just need to break off certain bad habits or relationships. And then we will be free and our problem solved. But when we realize, friends, that our hearts are the fundamental problem, we realize that we can't escape that. If you leave your marriage, your heart goes with you. If you leave your job... Your heart goes with you. We are our biggest problem because of our hearts. Number two, recognize that we are sinners who sin. That is, sinning is not merely an action or a habit that we have, but sinner is what we are. This is the characteristic that binds all humanity together. We're all made in God's image, and we're all defiled because of our sin. We are sinners. It's not merely the case that we do bad things. It is the case that we are bad people. We are sinners who sin. Number three, we deserve judgment for our sin. This is what we saw in that Genesis 6 reading, isn't it? You know, the human condition hasn't changed from Genesis 6 to today. God would be just to judge us even now for our sin because we're defiled by it. Our impurity and uncleanness is ever before and ever holy, always good, totally righteous, never impure, completely undefiled, just judge. And he will give us what we deserve. No more and no less. While many world religions would tell you to try to increase your good deeds to try to secure your place in paradise, Christianity and the religion of Jesus begins with the fundamental assertion that we are so bad that we could never earn our way to God. Before we can get to the good news of the gospel, that Christ saves us from our sin, we must first reckon with the fact of how bad our sin really is. Sin deserves God's punishment and wrath. We deserve God's punishment and wrath. Fourth, the human heart is the biggest problem in the world. It's our biggest problem, like individually. It's also the world's biggest problem. Covered this a bit last week. Because our disobedience and sin is the biggest problem, any proposed solution to human ills that does not also seek to address, this problem will always ultimately in the end fail because we must reckon with the human heart. As long as humans are around, sin is going to be around. There are no utopias before Christ returns. Fifth, what you and I need is more than external, surface level change. We need more than better habits, new friends, rejuvenated fitness, or anything like that. I mean, that's like putting a, band-aid over a gaping wound. It may stop the bleeding momentarily, but it doesn't deal with the source of the problem. Friends, I can't tell you how many times I hear people say after some sin is in the process of of ruining someone's life, and they say, I I need to make a change. Something's got to go. My life is a mess. And then they proceed to change the amount of calories that they're intaking. They start getting up an hour earlier in the morning. Uh, Of course, those can be helpful things. But that leaves completely unaddressed the most important thing. Friends, don't settle for surface level changes. God is able to do much bigger, better, and deeper and lasting change. Sixth, we need a solution outside of ourselves. Because we are the problem, we cannot also be the solution. It's like going to a poisoned well, realizing that the water's poisoned, changing cups, and continuing to try to drink from the well. The cup isn't the problem. The well is. And insofar as that well remains poisoned, it will never provide the life and sustenance needed. And so, friends, you and I have poisoned hearts. Any solution that comes from within that derives its power and existence from human willing or exertion. Well, it will be bound by the same limitations, the same sin that caused the problem in the first place. We need a solution extra nos, outside of ourselves. And so seventh and finally, Jesus provides the new heart that we need. And I'm just gonna pause here and say, you should come back to the evening service tonight because we're going to like drill down deep on this. It's amazing. I'm going to show you why Deuteronomy is the best book of the Old Testament, I think. It is awesome. For reasons of space. This, This part should be the whole sermon, just point number seven, but you get 30 seconds. Jesus provides the new heart that we need. I wonder if you noticed that scriptural assurance of pardon we did from Jeremiah 31. After reflecting on the Mosaic law's failure, that covenant's failure as Israel didn't go after the Lord. What does the Lord promise through Jeremiah? thirty-one, thirty-three says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. What does Ezekiel 36 say? The Lord says the same promise about the new covenant. The Lord says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone in your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is what we so desperately need. Not new circumstances, many of which we can't even change. They've already happened. Not new habits or new skills, as if we could work up enough energy and might and willpower to last a lifetime. What we so desperately need are new hearts. And that's what Jesus provides. You remember at the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, Jesus said that through his death on the cross, his blood purchased this new covenant for us. He who was perfectly pure in heart, who alone could ascend the hill of the Lord with clean hands and a pure heart, yet endured the cross. The defilement of sin was laid upon him. He endured wrath and punishment so that for all who trust in him, they would have their sins forgiven, their hearts restored, given brand new a new fountain of life, not of poisonous water, but the well of life, eternal drink. So that now as Christians, well, yes, we're sinners who sin, but now as Christians, we're saints who fight. We are saints who wage war on the evil thoughts and sins that remain. Brothers and sisters, this is what we need. This is what our children need. This is what our neighbors need. And so we pray. We pray that God would do it. We can't do it. I can't give you a new heart. You can't give me one. I can't give it to my children, but God can. We pray and we teach. We praise God that he's given us this new heart and we take courage. Oh, Christian, though your sin still defiles you, Christ's blood has ever washed you clean. He's given you his spirit and now he is conforming your heart to his heart. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I pray that you will see your desperate need for a Savior. I pray the Lord would convict you of your sin. And I pray that you would see the depths of love of him who came to give his life so that he would be near to you forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you. Because though we are sinful to the bone, though we deserve nothing but your judgment and punishment, yet you have been so merciful. Though our sins are many, your mercy is more. We rejoice in the work that you've accomplished through Christ. Lord Jesus, we praise you for securing our redemption on the cross. Holy Spirit, we praise you for for purifying our hearts, for melting away the dross, that you'd purify us to be like our Lord and Savior. Father, we pray that you'd give us renewed courage and strength in the fight against sin. We pray that if there are any here who do not know Christ, that you'd reveal yourself in him to them by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray all these things in Christ's name and for his glory, amen. Well, friends, we're gonna conclude our time together by singing Jesus Paid It All. Uh, I wonder if you notice, or you should notice, look now. You can notice, verse two, Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change the leper's spots and melt the heart of stone. Friends, let's stand and exult in the great savior as we sing, Jesus paid it all. Let's stand and sing.